From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dankler. Thurber House guest James B. Stewart is most recently the author of Tangled Webs, How False Statements Are Undermining America, From Martha Stewart to Bernie Madoff. I talked to him about how he got his start writing, what kind of reader comments surprise him, and the surprising consequences, or lack of, for committing perjury in the United States. James B. Stewart is the author of A Guide to Writing Nonfiction and eight books of journalism from 1983's The Partners, Inside America's Most Powerful Law Firms, to 1996's Disney War, to his most recent 2011's Tangled Webs, How False Statements Are Undermining America, from Martha Stewart to Bernie Madoff. He joins us as a guest of the always excellent Thurber House author series. Welcome to Writer's Talk, James B. Stewart. Thank you, nice to be here. Great, you got your law degree at Harvard, that's true. And won a Pulitzer Prize for the Wall Street Journal articles on the 1987 stock market crash. Before that, how did you get your start as a writer? What got you into writing? Well, you know, a lot of people, parents mostly, come up to me and say, oh, how can I get my child to be a writer? And, or, you know, my little Johnny just loves to write, so should be a, he should be a writer. I think that's very unnatural, children who supposedly love to write. Um, I certainly never did as a child, but I love to read. And at least for me, writing is a way of replicating the, that experience for other readers. And that's really, I think, what motivated me. I, I grew up in the Midwest in a small city, and the public library was my window, was my magic carpet. I haunted the place. I loved reading. I still love reading really more than any other pastime. And, um, I guess that's the main reason I turned to writing. Okay. Was, when did that turn to writing start? I mean, you go through law school and you're taught to write in a specific way, which is quite a bit different, I think, than the way that you write now. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think I was chafing at some of the constraints of, of legal writing, even though it can be effective within the legal system. And I was a defendant in a, in a libel suit over one of my books, Den of Thieves and was represented by a big law firm. And I, I was constantly like rewriting the briefs, making them more narrative, making them more powerful, more engaging. And they kept saying, no, 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 leave this to us. You know, We realize you went to law school, but um, the, the goal here is not to engage and entertain the judge, it is to win this case. And so there, you know, there are conventions of legal writing that you have to follow. I think as a, as a storyteller, I was uh, felt constrained by those conventions. So tell me about the move then from uh, law school, getting out of law school, to starting to write for, say, the Wall Street Journal. That's not a, a momentary transition. No, um, although there are a surprising number of lawyers who do go into journalism. I think there are even more journalists who go into law, but seeking higher salaries. But nevertheless, um, I was working, I went to law school, I was working at a big law firm in New York, very competitive environment, uh, where a very, very small percentage of people hired as associates are eventually made partner. And I started to look at the characteristics of people who succeeded in Made Partner. And the one thing that I was most impressed by was how much they loved their work. They, they didn't just tolerate it or like it. They weren't just good at it. They were passionate about it and they loved it. And I realized I didn't share that. And it's very hard to compete against people who are that motivated and who are that passionate about what they're doing. So I thought, well, what would I be that passionate about? Because I saw what a tremendous advantage it gives you if you love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I'm gonna shift to journalism and writing. Okay, so you started writing for the Wall Street Journal. You now have a, com uh, a uh, column called Common Sense. Right. Tell me about writing a column versus a long form like the books. 
What's the, the shift well, you've got to make? At this point in my career, I sort of have the advantage of several worlds. I write short-term things in the weekly column for the Wall Street Journal. I write long magazine articles for The New Yorker. And then, of course, I write books like Tangled Webs. And um, one, one aspect of that is you get a different kind of gratification. The, the work on a weekly column, you get feedback right away. Mm -hmm. And for a long magazine article, maybe you'll work on it three or four, five, six months even. And then a book like this is years in the making. Um, and they match different parts of my personality. The, the, um, I'm not a, a solitary hermit, so only doing books I think I would find not quite social enough for my personality. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, sinking that much work and time into something in the end is by far the most gratifying, I think, of the, the projects that I do. Because it's intellectually gratifying, or when you go on tour you get more of a response to it than the instant gratification of, say, the common sense column. Well, no, it has nothing to do with the tours, <laughs> which, uh, much as I enjoy them, uh, like this interview. But um, it's uh, books have a profound impact on people's lives. I mean, occasionally I did a front page story for the Wall Street Journal that someone would say changed their life. But with books, you really people engage on a very, very deep level, and um, it's so moving to me as a writer that you. It's not like that's my goal, but that if that is the effect, sometimes it's just it's very gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, weekly columns are great, and they they serve to educate. They help people. I hope I, I get a lot of positive feedback from them. But I've never had anyone come up and say, "Oh, that column changed my life." Mm -hmm. That is a completely different experience. Okay. Well, then let's talk to uh, turn to the book and uh, start talking about Tangled Webs, which is an examination of perjury false statements under oath right. uh, from uh, four different people, Martha Stewart, Barry Bonds, Scooter Libby, and Bernie Madoff. Um, I assume that you covered these in your column before you started the book. No, I didn't no? actually. No, this, okay. is all, this is all original material. Okay. Um, none of these stories appeared in, in magazines or columns before, although I did talk, it may be in passing, right. about I mean, some you, of these. Right, I mean, these are such big stories, I think you would have to sort of glance off them at some yes, point. Yes, I had written a few columns, I think, about, about the Martha Stewart case, the Bernie Madoff fraud when it was uncovered. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe I spoke too quickly. There's, there were, I at least glanced upon it, but essentially I started afresh, and I had an array of possible cases to write about. I mean, once I recognized the problem, I started seeing you know, perjury everywhere. And I, I rattle off about 20 or 25 examples in the opening pages of the book. But um, I narrowed it down to these four for a variety of reasons. One was to, to show the breadth of perjury in American society today. They're all from different aspects of, of life. Secondly, I chose people who were at the pinnacle of their fields because I was so mystified by why people who are so successful, well-educated role models would risk everything, would mm -hmm. risk so much by committing a crime of making false statements. And then I chose them because they each illustrate distinctively different dimensions of the consequences of perjury in society from both the sort of very micro level in individual lives to the very broad level of investors who lose you know, billions of dollars or a democracy that essentially can't function or a judicial system that cannot function because people are, being, are, are lying. Mm -hmm. And you, you say that um, the perjury is damaging to the U.S., um, and you feel that, I mean, that's one of the points of the book, and what, a, what I'm assuming why you're writing it. Let's look at a flip side of that. Now that you've done this investigation um, of the people involved, 
How has that affected your view of the third part of the legal system, the, the rehabilitation, the correction system? These people are, and several of these people are out. Martha is out um, doing some of the same things that she, uh, some of the same, sorry, Martha, um, doing some of the same before I get sued. For this, some of the, uh, you know, she's gone back to Martha Stewart living and that kind of stuff. Do, do you think that if the judicial system is having trouble with lying, has the rehabilitation affected the people? Have, have you seen change? Do you follow them after you've written about them? Well, um, all four of these characters, from my perspective, are still lying. The, the fact that they were charged, prosecuted, convicted, or admitted guilt has not changed that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Martha Stewart, in one of her more recent comments, said that she doesn't even remember why she was uh, <laughs> I read why that. she was charged. I now, that was does that pass the common sense test for credibility? I don't think so. Um, but Martha Stewart still maintains she's in, she is, was innocent, and she claims that she was being persecuted for being a successful woman. She, she's doing further damage to public trust in their, our institutions by continuing, in my view, to make false public statements, not under oath, but nevertheless, they're false statements. Scooter Libby still claims he was improperly charged and that he was innocent. Barry Bond still maintains his innocence. Um, there was a hung jury on three of the perjury counts, but he was convicted of obstruction and making misleading statements. Bernie Madoff admitted perjury. He pleaded guilty to perjury, and clearly he lied over a 20-year period under oath. Uh, but he's still lying from his prison cell. So I don't think any of these characters have been rehabilitated. Um, why is that? Uh, it's obviously they feel it's more important to them to keep lying for their reputations uh, than it is to, to finally tell the truth. There are two elements of law enforcement. One is to deter others. And um, I would say there's been modest success in some of these cases. And the second is rehabilitation, and that has been a failure. What do you think of the modest successes on the first part of deterring others? Where do you see that deterrent working after you've done this? Well, there hasn't been nearly enough deterrence, in my view, as exemplified by how many people think they can get away with it. But nevertheless, prosecutors certainly told me that as visible a figure as Martha Stewart being charged with perjury had an effect at least a short-term effect day-to-day -day on the amount of lying that they saw every day. But what we're up against is a, a, a culture and a climate where um, we've had two recent presidents, the highest law enforcement officer in the United States, an important role model both here and for the world. And Bill Clinton committed perjury and only grudgingly acknowledged it and has never really issued a heartfelt apology for it. And in his successor, I can be bipartisan here since he's a Republican, uh, George Bush commuted the sentence of Scooter Libby. He never had to go to jail. He didn't, didn't really have to pay a penalty for, for flagrant perjury. And uh, that essentially condoned perjury. So we've had two presidents in a row either committing perjury or condoning it. And then, you know, the prosecutors are left holding up their hands saying, no wonder that, you know, as they told me, every single day they'd come into work and people lie to them. Okay. So what do you expect uh, to, how do you think that this could be changed? You say perjury has no longer really a serious crime, it seems like. It, it's happening quite frequently. It's not being taken seriously. What, after re writing this book, what would be your suggestions for rehabilitating perjury? As a, well, a let me stress crime. that I believe it is a very serious crime, and the book demonstrates that. But to, to attack a, the, the problem, I think, has to be done 
uh, on a continuum. At the top, I, I really feel President Obama ought to be very visible in public about this. The Justice Department ought to bring some very visible prosecutions and underscore the fact that perjury is going to be taken seriously and will not be tolerated. And then on an everyday level, one thing you see in this book is how other people who didn't commit perjury themselves, nevertheless, in various ways, condoned it, ignored it, covered it up, got dragged into the scandals themselves, they didn't want to make waves. We all have to look around us and stop condoning it. We have to stop applauding people who cheat and lie their way to the top and pretending like that doesn't matter. Uh, and we need to teach our children. Um, the, the judicial system rests on an honor code that people will hold up their hands, swear to tell the truth, and then, in fact, actually tell the truth. And if, we, if they stop doing this on a, on a broad basis, the system collapses. I was really taken by, I, I think that you do a, a great job of relaying the stories, but also that you're that you hone in on the characters. And I think for you, I'm guessing, that the characters are what moves you and motivates you through the story and doing the, the character descriptions. And there's a character in the Martha B. Stewart, um, Doug, and I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, Faneuil, that um, comes, uh, clearly comes through as the person that was the most damaged by all of this. Right. Um, and his life is destroyed, I think, more than anybody else's. Right. And I'm, as a writer, when you walk into that and you start seeing how this stuff functions for these people. How do you, uh, especially for something that's supposed to be a little bit more pulled back, a little bit more journalistic, how do you deal with that uh, aspect, seeing the destruction and not letting that sort of overly influence your writing? How do you pull back from that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you clearly, um, you need to maintain a certain distance and objectivity. And uh, the Doug Faneuil story to me is a vivid illustration of how individual lies can be destroyed by other, other people's lying. Mm -hmm. You know, Martha Stewart may still be a celebrity, but she gives no sign of caring at one whit what, how other people have been affected. But, you know, I see a Doug Faneuil and his life was essentially destroyed. And yet, in the book, he's one of the most courageous people. He was drawn into the scheme, he lied, and then he had the courage to admit it. He held up his hand and swore to tell the truth, and then he found he had to tell the truth. He couldn't keep lying. It took tremendous courage and integrity to do that, and yet he suffered immense consequences. Um, I have a lot, of, a lot of feelings towards him, but I find as a writer that um, this is partly, I guess, my experiences in reading, maybe it's just my personality, but that if readers reach this conclusion, if they feel for him, the, 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 the message is going to be so much more powerful than if I am there telling them how mm -hmm. I feel. In other words, I want to be the invisible hand in the narrative. I want to tell the story, but I don't want to tilt the, tilt the deck. I want to be you know, scrupulously fair so that readers will draw their own conclusions. And, and by the way, I'm always interested to see that some people will have a reaction that's completely unexpected. Um, For example? Well, recently someone, after reading Disney War, which is a pretty, in my view, scathing portrait of life at the top of the entertainment industry, came to me and said how much they admired Michael Eisner, the <laughs> chief executive of Disney, after reading my book. And I, really? and I just said, hmm. And why, why isn't that wh interesting? Why did they admire it? Well, I didn't get into too much detail, but they said, oh, it's, you know, it's just such an impossible business. How can anyone run that sort of thing? And, you know, he, he was so successful. I said, mm-hmm, well, that's interesting. Uh, but I was, I was taken aback. And then in my book, Den of Thieves, which is, you know, the main character is Michael Milken, the junk bond king who admitted to, you know, multiple felonies in the 80s. I've actually had 
um, some like students and business school students come up to me and say after reading that book how much they admire him and how they want to emulate him. And the that success or the, the I, action? I, well, again, I, I don't want to cross-examine them, but I'm, <laughs> I'm nevertheless startled. Um, but at the same time, I feel, well, I've done a, a good job in a way if you if you see if people bring their own experiences and then develop and then have different reactions to the material that I give them. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, James B. Stewart, Wall Street Journal columnist and author of multiple books of journalism, including his most recent Tangled Webs: How False Statements Are Undermining America from Martha Stewart to Bernie Madoff. For more information about James B. Stewart, visit www.writerstalk.org. Now back to our discussion on how writing about convicted criminals like Martha Stewart and Barry Bonds impacts James B. Stewart as a writer and a person. Following all these stories, you're, you're focusing, I think, eight books of um, journalism or nonfiction mm -hmm. on various scandals, various problems. Have, do you, does that have an effect on you as a writer after a while? I mean, the news is always sort of negative. You know, you're always, so here are the bad things, you know. And the, when you look at the end of this, Martha is back. Sam Waxel is, to me, incredibly, he's the chairman and CEO of Cadman Chemicals, uh, Pharmaceuticals. Um, so he's back at, you know, doing whatever. And uh, how do you sit back at the end of that and say, writers are important in, in some ways. You expect the guy to be a, a janitor or not that that's a bad thing or to not be given a position of authority. And yet, after all of these, after all this writing, after all this, he's now the CEO of something. How does that impact you as a writer? Well, I'm a writer. I'm not a prosecutor or a judge or I don't make those decisions. And I feel as writers, essentially we're um, educating, mm -hmm. we're entertaining. And I think, you know, human beings have always communicated deep truths through storytelling. And that's what I hope to accomplish here. Uh, they, to me, the message is, I don't want to put myself in the same league as, um, you know, Shakespeare, but I admire Shakespeare tremendously. And, and all of his, his stories transcend their era. They transcend the immediate characters. They survive the era in which they were written. Uh, I would like to think that some of these stories will survive, you know, my life, the lives of these characters, whether Sam Waxel does or does not get his just desserts on this earth. It's kind of neither here nor there. The, 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 the truths embedded in these stories, to me, are timeless. And that's what draws me to the stories. To me, what would be troublesome is if no one told the stories, uh, and we would never learn from them. Then there would be truly no accountability for the rich and the powerful who, you know, sweep their way through lives and damage others and, you know, pillage and uh, cause billions of dollars in lo of losses. Uh, and then they, they would simply get away with it. Um, to me, a written record means that the stories are going to be there for others to learn from. Now, when you did the uh, book, you've got a, a lot of interviews with people, uh, I'm assuming, but I'm assuming you didn't get to talk to the primary characters, Barry Bonds, um, Martha Stewart, Scooter Libby, and Bernie Madoff. That's correct. I did approach them all. Uh, I was negotiating with Madoff, uh, and he was, you know, putting all kinds of conditions and things, and I finally just decided, well, you know, really, I don't believe him anyway, so what's the point? I mean, I, I will say, I always want to hear from any anyone I mention in any of my mm -hmm. stories, because it's, no matter what you think, the, there are always surprising things to be gained. Nevertheless, given that I reached the, con and by the way, I started with an open mind, but very quickly reached the conclusion they were all major liars. If I had to give up having sources, then I was willing to let them go. Okay, my interest in that is, of those four people, which one would you most like to actually have a, 
direct conversation with for to check the things in your book, or as just a writer having delineated this character, having looked at the profile as you do in here, who would you most like to sit down and just actually talk to? Uh, I think Scooter Libby, because I think he's, he's probably the most self-aware of, of these four characters. I mean, mm -hmm. Bernie Madoff is a sociopath, and um, having interviewed a number of them in the past, they're, they're not self-aware. They're constantly manipulative. They're fr very frustrating to have a conversation with, although they certainly can be interesting. So um, I think Scooter Libby has, is taking a lot of secrets, or what he thinks are secrets, with him. And I, I would like to have talked to him, because I think he's rational. I think it would have been actually, he would have found it very therapeutic to unburden himself, and then we all would have learned something more from it. But. Okay. What surprised you most in your research for this? What, what really just floored you? Well, I started out with a sort of central mystery, as I mentioned, was why would, why would people so successful and well-educated and role models, mm -hmm. why would they risk everything by lying? I came away with the conclusion, which was completely surprising to me, that it's actually people like that who are probably more prone to lie. There are a number of mm -hmm. reasons for that. One is they're surrounded by people who never challenge them. I would call them enablers. They can tell these whoppers, and nobody says, oh, come on, you know, who'd believe that? I mean, they never get questioned, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, including so their lawyers. I mean, it's, it's dismaying to me that most of them, when they lied, are sitting there with a lawyer at their side who didn't interrupt or say anything or try to stop, you know, this barrel from going over Niagara Falls when, frankly, I thought it would have been pretty obvious that these things weren't true. Um, they're also, you know, let's, let's don't be naive here. I don't think this is the first time they, they did something like this. They, they have succeeded. They've gotten away with things in the past. Um, if you look like somebody like Barry Bonds, I mean, these people don't think the rules apply to them. And by the way, the rules never have applied to them for most of their careers, at least once mm -hmm. they've been very successful. Um, and then I think the simple answer is that they, they think they're, they're going to get away with it and that given the, you know, the rate of prosecution, the success of prosecution in this area, that's not an irrational conclusion. Mm -hmm. okay. How do you start off a with a, a character sketch of somebody, you say, okay, this story interests me. What are your techniques to getting into learning about that person and learning about this story? What's your first line of questioning? Well, uh, this I think is a really important point, uh, and I, I stress this to my students, is that the questioning to me is less important than listening. Um, an ideal interview for me, especially an initial interview, if someone's willing to talk, is to kind of, um, you know, say hello and, and, and say, so like, how did you get involved in this or something? And then basically, I never have to say much more. In fact, I actually interviewed former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson for a big New Yorker story I did on the um, financial crisis. And I believe I said hello, and we sat down, and he started talking. And two hours later, I don't think I'd said anything except an occasional murmur to keep him going. <laughs> he, he just narrated. Well, that's, that's a great interview in, in my book. Now, that doesn't mean it's no work or it's easy. You have to listen, 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 listen. And the art of listening is a whole other subject that we could talk about. But I learned so much by listening very attentively and seeing where they want to take this narrative, what, what's important to them, what stands out. Then in subsequent interviews, I'll often come back with more probing questions, ask for, for details and certain things that, that interest me. But I learned so much by just letting them go with a cooperative witness. And then I also, since I didn't get to interview the main characters, I also stressed to my students that you can, I've written all my books about characters who either wouldn't wouldn't talk to me or couldn't talk to me. In some cases, they were dead. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't get a very detailed portrait. In fact, sometimes 
having someone cooperate too much gets in the way because all you hear is their version of what they mm -hmm. want to hear and it spares you the, the otherwise the need to circle around and the people who know them well to get their impressions and to get the anecdotes that really you see them in action. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, something you said on Charlie Rose that uh, you're really interested in that moment where you see the person go over the edge, where you right. see the person. And how is it that you identify that? I mean, that comes up through your research, but are there moments where you go, okay, I finally have got it, this is it, this is the moment, and then that becomes the nexus around everything that you, you build all the way around that. Is that how it well, works? Well, in this case, the, the moment was when they lied under oath for the first time. Okay. So what was the key question? And, and that, then you, you, must, you can sort of see the wheels turning. Mm -hmm. And um, in the reporting for this, I was able to discover those moments and be able to recreate them because these are all cases that, that are quite unusual in that many transcripts of grand jury proceedings were made public. They're usually secret. Mm -hmm. uh, there was courtroom testimony in a few cases. So I was able to get transcripts of that the dialogue and the questions when the law was committed. Now, I, I did initially when I was in my own mind thinking of how to structure these stories, I thought of beginning with that critical moment. So I thought this is so dramatic, this is what mm -hmm. sets, the, the, sets everything in motion. And I tried writing those scenes as the opening of the stories and it didn't work because without context, the reader didn't understand that these were laws. Right. They just seemed even plausible. It seems hard to also to imagine opening on the, the deposition or the I'm not a lawyer. I think the uh, place where Martha Stewart starts to tell her lies, or where Bernie Madoff starts, well, you can have a harder time with that. But where exactly that was in the, the courtroom, because as you said, there's no context, but there's also this sort of sense of, well, is that what it is? To me, what I kept thinking back on this, especially during the Martha Stewart one, is the moment where it actually occurred. And that's where I thought, the, the, where, sorry, where the lies began, where um, Doug Fanuel is being told yes. by Oh, uh, I see, boss. not the lying under oath, but when they're hatching the plot. Right. Yes. Because what really surprised me was how bad the attempts were later to make up for it. You would think. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> that they would have a better story. But they turn out to be actually very bad storytellers, very bad writers. Apparently that's the problem with them. And they didn't come up with any better way of doing it. And they kept switching stories, at least for, for the steward. They were, they were terrible. But, you know, all four of the main characters turned out to be terrible liars. A lot of people ask me, well, who is, who is the best liar of the group? And, I, and I've, been, I've come to the conclusion, no, the relevant question is who is the worst liar in the group? Because they were all bad. And who was the worst? Oh, well, in some ways, I would have to say um, Madoff, even though I started out thinking, well, surely he must be a genius liar because he right. survived four SEC investigations over 20 years. His lies are preposterous. One of the worst is that he, clearly from his trading, if you believed it, he had cracked the, you know, the holy grail of investing, which is only to invest when the market is going up and be out of the market when it's going down. So when the SEC investigator said, well, what's your secret formula here? He said, it's like putting oranges and carrots in a blender. That was his answer. Oranges and carrots in a blender. I mean, what, that, that, what does that that's mean? Preposterous. That, that, that's meaningless. Oh, and then if you turn the speed on one level, you get one consistency. If you do it on another level, it's another consistency. And the, the investigators were just kind of like sitting there absorbing this drivel. I, I was just, I was stunned by that. <laughs> but, you know, they were all quite bad. Um, and I could go into more details about how bad these alibis were. But you're absolutely right that Martha and 
or st Stewart and her stockbroker, Peter Bukanovic, could not get their story straight. They told, they're trying to get Doug to lie along with them, and they gave him two different stories right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that from the, the, the drama of it and, and telling the narrative, that, to, that was part of my goal, that you, first you saw the crimes unfolding, and then you saw the efforts to hold them accountable, to pin them down, to prosecute them, and bring them to justice. So the reader is a, is a, a fly on the wall and sees very early on where, you know, that they're committing this right. crime. And you do a lot of foreshadowing, dramatic, I think, moments where you stop and then you move on with a different part of the story to bring the reader along, which I was really uh, taken with. One final question. You've got a 1984 book, Follow the Story, How to Write Successful Nonfiction. And uh, if you were writing this book 27 years later, what would, with the advent of the internet and apparently the invention of lying, uh, <laughs> what would you change about it? Now, I mean, looking back on that particular piece. Well, I've been wondering whether I should go back and, and update it, although uh, I honestly think that the techniques of effective storytelling transcend any genre. I mean, radio, television, digital, uh, the Internet. I, the Internet may take us back to like a Dickensian-like installment series. I mean, I don't think you're going to, you're not going to print, a, you know, 800 pages of Bleak House on the in one installment in, one hopes uh, so. in the internet, <laughs> um, but I, and so I probably would go back and look at you know particularly short form writing and and how 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 you need to adapt that for the internet. But I my my fundamental hunch is that things have not changed that much. In fact, they haven't changed that much since people were putting pictures on caves. The elements of a good story have remained constant. So cave writing and internet writing, you're equating them right here. Well, cave writing was a very succinct way of telling a story, mm -hmm. let's face it. I mean, if you, all you had was charcoal scratching on the, and a candle, you, you couldn't write Bleak House. Right, yeah. And you probably wouldn't, given my feelings towards Dickens, but that's, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Well, James B. Stewart, I thank you very much for being here today on Writer's thank Talk. You. For more information about James B. Stewart, visit www.writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch our shows either on their website at www.ohiochannel.org or check your local television listings. Join us next week for recent Thurber House guest Kristen Hanna, author of Night Road. Until then, this is Doug Dangler from Ohio State. Keep writing. <laughs>